Time has come for us to reset our criteria of what we think is practical. That time has come. If you remember, I also expressed my burden, my concern, that I believe that many in the church today have grown a little too pragmatic in their expectations, that we've turned into a bunch of how-to junkies, theological couch potatoes, that we need our theology, we need our teaching pre-chewed and bite-sized and dipped in candy and wrapped in plastic. I also made the claim that if you're looking for something practical, and if you're looking for something life-transforming and life-shaping at the factory level of the soul, then what you need, then you'll find it in getting in having your soul clobbered by the towering majesty of the living God. That that's practical. That the essence of practical is a devastating glimpse of the God who spoke galaxies into existence. That the most practical thing for our lives and the most healthy medication for the soul is, in fact, an encounter with the matchless supremacy of God from the pages of Holy Scripture. That, I claimed, is practical. And then I put my money where my mouth is by preaching two weeks on Isaiah chapter 40, that magisterial vision of the supremacy of God. So here's the thing. The reason that is practical, the reason why seeing and beholding and savoring the majesty of God is practical, listen carefully, is because when our souls are rocked by the beauty of who God is in his glorious perfections, what that produces in the soul is the fear of God. The fear of God. And you see that right there is the essence of practical. And I know that sounds crazy, I know that that seems irrational. There's no way that's true, but it absolutely is true. In fact, I would, I would go on to argue that, that fearing God is the vital missing link in most people's lives that perfectly explains their lack of holiness, their lack of hope, their lack of courage, their, their lack of joy, their preoccupation with entertainment and amusements. In other words, the weakness of the church in holiness and hope and courage and perseverance is owing largely to the fact that the fear of God has been relegated to a bygone era. Oh, we don't talk about that nowadays. We talk about grace today. And we talk about the fear of God. We, we leave the fear of God for the puritanical caveman days when the church only knew about sin and, and God's wrath and had not yet discovered his grace. And yet, and yet, the time has come this morning where we need to deprogram our aversion to the fear of God. That we need to embrace the fear of God. 
not only as beautiful and glorious, but essential to our holiness and to our worship and even to our very joy. Yes, fearing God is the secret to our joy. And this morning, the fear of God is going to be the subject of our contemplation, what it means, why it matters, what it produces in the soul, but you see what largely prompted pausing in the book of Isaiah to today talk about the fear of God was in fact the prophet Isaiah. In fact, what it was particularly was Isaiah chapter 40, that, that magisterial presentation of who God is and the, and the glory of his perfections. You see that vision of God, maybe you want to pause and pose the question, what do you do with that theology? How, how, do you, how do you respond? How do you apply that theology? What does the Bible itself want us to do with a vision of God, supreme and sovereign? And maybe the more important question is, how does God himself want us to respond to God himself? That's the question. And the answer, believe it or not, given in the Bible is to fear him. It's to fear him. And I understand how that sounds. I mean, if fearing God sounds repulsive and undesirable to you, the problem lies not that the Bible calls you to fear God. The problem is in how you define what it means to fear God. Because should you define the fear of God in a certain way, meaning the wrong way, you will find God distant and cold and cruel and unapproachable. And to our great relief, that is not what the Bible means. Should you, however, define the fear of God in the right way, meaning the way the Bible defines the fear of God, then you will find God to be such a treasure of matchless beauty and staggering sovereign power that who he is shapes who you are in even the most private secret moments when no one can see you except God. And that's practical. See, the thing that makes the fear of God so powerful in our lives is that it goes beneath the root to, 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 goes to the very root of our deepest struggles. I mean, even if you don't hear one word about your particular struggles directly today, and you probably won't, the fear of God does nevertheless get to the bottom of every single issue you could possibly face. Why? Because it has to do with your very conceptions of what God are like. And this morning, rather than preach one text, a single text, which is my favorite thing to do, I'm going to preach lots of text. I'm going to preach a theology, a biblical theology of the fear of God. And to do that, we need to look from Genesis to Revelation, from first creation to new creation, from Eden to the new Jerusalem. To We have to look at what the entire Bible has to say about the fear of God. And when we're done, you'll not only know what it means and how to define it, but you will find it to be one of the sweetest secrets to holiness and hope and courage and joy and the perseverance of your faith. So here we go. Theology of the fear of God, what it means, why it matters, and what it produces in the life. Here's where we're going. This morning, I want you to see five compelling reasons. Five compelling reasons to pursue the fear of God with single-minded passion and intensity. That's where we're headed. Five compelling reasons to pursue the fear of God with single-minded passion and intensity. And yet there's a catch before we do that. 
We've got to talk about a couple things, three things in particular. There, there are, you see, to understand, to get to the bottom of the fear of God, to truly appreciate it and be impacted by it, there are three pre preliminary issues that we have got to get to the bottom of. Before we pursue the fear of God with single-minded passion and intensity, we've got to wrestle with three particular issues. Issue number one, the dilemma of fearing God. The dilemma of fearing God, because this is a dilemma, right? Isn't this the problem? I mean, does this not seem incompatible with the rest of the Christian life? Because loving God you get, trusting God you embrace, but fearing God doesn't seem to fit with the rest of the Christian life. I mean, how do you fear a God that you're supposed to love? Fear and love just don't seem to reconcile. I mean, after all, fear is for fires and monsters and rapists and diseases and abusive and unstable fathers. Those are objects worthy of fear, not God, not the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. That, that makes zero sense in, in light of who God really is. And furthermore, does not 1 John 4, 18 say that perfect love casts out fear? So this really does seem to be pre-Christian, if not even anti-Christian, to fear God. And I understand that. I understand well the objections to fearing God. I also get the need, jerk, impulse, and desire to redefine it and choose alternative words that are a little more palatable, a little less offensive, a little less prone to misunderstanding that pack a little less punch, terms like revere and respect and regard, maybe even awe. And yet choose whatever terms you want. The problem still doesn't go away. The Bible does not merely call you to respect God, but to fear him, even to tremble before him. You can't sneak around the Bible's vocabulary and write the script another way. Because did you know that there are over 20 Hebrew words that describe fearing God? Over 20. Each one describing the fear of God in a commendable way as an appropriate response of worship to God. Fear, tremble, shudder. Dread, terror, to writhe and tremble, to be frightened, to be in terror, to be afraid, to be horrified, to shake and quake and be weakened with fear, to fall on your face in a coma. This is everywhere in the Bible with hundreds and hundreds of texts promoting and commending and commanding us to fear the Lord, to fear and tremble, not merely respect. And it simply will not do just to appeal to the New Testament as if something has changed because literally nothing has changed. Rather than veer away from fearing God, Christ and the prophet, Christ and the apostles double down on fearing God. Upholding the fear of God as the right response to an infinite God, matchless and supreme, because you remember the words of the Lord Jesus, don't you? I will show you who you should fear. Fear the one who after he kills has the authority to cast into hell. Yes, I say to you, fear him. First Peter 1.17. 
Peter says, if you call, if you address as father, the one who impartially judges according to the work of each person, live your lives in fear during the time of your stay on earth. That's very interesting. That he defines the entirety of the Christian life as one of fearing the father. What's my point? My point is linguistically, statistically, and theologically. We have no choice but to embrace the fear of God as the essence of what it means to be a true believer. In other words, if you're going to correctly define what faith is according to the Bible, it's just going to have to include at the center of its meaning the concepts of fear and trembling and even a sense of holy dread before the majesty and supremacy of God. And yet that is precisely the dilemma, isn't it? That is the problem. The fact that the Bible calls us to fear God, that's exactly what just feels so out of place in the Christian life. We flinch and we react against the fear of God as if it is somehow incompatible with the rest of the Christian life. And yet, and yet, if fear is really so incompatible with faith, why then are faith and fear equated in Exodus 14, 31? Don't have to turn there, but listen carefully. This was at the Exodus, listen. And Israel saw the great hand, the great power which Yahweh worked against the Egyptians. And the people feared Yahweh and they trusted in Yahweh. Did you catch it? The connection between fear and faith. First they feared Yahweh, then they had faith in Yahweh. Did you see that? It took fearing him to have faith in him. What they saw from God at the Exodus made them fear who God was, and that made them trust in who God was. Do you see? And when you look at the Pentateuch as a whole, Genesis through Deuteronomy, that's what we see, that fear is used as a synonym with faith itself. To fear him is to have faith in him. To have faith in him is to fear him, because these are, in fact, one and the same. And then Exodus chapter 20, verse 20, after the giving of the Ten Commandments. Listen carefully. The people see the mountain where Yahweh's glory was. Do you remember the scene? And it was not a light scene. It was not a happy scene necessarily. There was thunder and lightning and the sound of trumpet and a mountain covered with smoke and fire. And there was an earthquake for crying out loud. And Exodus says, the people saw and they trembled and they stood at a distance, which makes sense. To which Moses replied, do not for God has come in order to test you and in order that you would fear him. <laughs> Moses, which is it? Don't fear God or fear God. And the answer Fear that runs from God is wrong. Fear that runs to God is right. 
Now, fearing God is such a negative thing. Why then does Deuteronomy 5.29 say to fear God that it may go well with you and your sons forever? If fear is really so incompatible with loving God, then why does Yahweh command fear and love as equally valid expressions of allegiance to him? Deuteronomy 10.12, listen carefully. And now, what does Yahweh your God require of you? Listen carefully, except to fear Yahweh. To walk in all of his ways, here it is, and to love him and to serve him with all of your heart and with all of your soul. Do you hear that? Of the four things that Yahweh requires of Israel, fearing him was at the top of the list, even before love and obedience. And, and serving him. What's the point? The point is fearing God and loving God are equated and even at some level interchangeable. Do you see? This is a fear that loves. This is a love that fears. Michael Reeves said this in his book on fearing God called Rejoice and Tremble. He says, true fear of God is true love for God defined? It is the right response to God's full-orbed revelation of himself in all of his grace and in all of his glory. He is exactly right. And get a load of this. Nehemiah 111 says that the servants of God delight, literally take pleasure in fearing him. Pleasure. Pleasure in fearing God. Did you know that was a thing? Did you know that was possible? If fearing God is really so inconsistent with joy in God, why then does Psalm 211 command us to serve Yahweh with fear and to rejoice with trembling? Serve with fear, rejoice with trembling. How do you tremble and rejoice in God? Well, it must be that fear and joy are really not so very far apart after all. Psalm 86, 11. Unite my heart to fear your name. Psalm 145, 19. God fulfills the desire of those who fear him. Psalm 147, listen how hope and fear are equal, equated, parallel, and synonymous. Yahweh takes pleasure in those who fear him, in those who hope for his loving kindness. Do you see this? It's a synonym with faith. It's equal to joy. It's parallel with hope. It's equated with love. Did you know this? Were you aware of this? And then you get to the Proverbs. And, and the fear of God is at the very center of the Proverbs theology. Chapter 1, verse 7. Fearing God is the beginning of knowledge, meaning you don't know anything until or unless you fear God. Proverbs 3, 7 and 8. 
Listen carefully. Fear Yahweh and turn away from evil. Why? For it will be healing to your body and refreshment to your bones. Do you see? It's therapeutic. It delights the soul. It even brings healing to the body. Proverbs 14, 27 says that the fear of God is a fountain of life, a fountain of life, meaning it satisfies the soul. Proverbs 19, 23 says that the man who fears God sleeps satisfied and will not be touched by evil. You want a good night's sleep and you want a holy life? You must fear God. And fearing God, whatever that means, it can't be too out of place in our lives because according to Ecclesiastes 12, verse 13, fearing God is the meaning of life itself. That's what the book is about. That ultimate meaning and significance and satisfaction is found in fearing God and keeping his commandments. That's exactly what he's saying. And then you move to the prophets. And if fearing God is really so unworthy of Christianity, why then does Isaiah 11 chapter say that the Messiah, when he arrived, would fear God? Jesus Christ, who is God, feared God. And yet as fully man, he modeled what it looked like to fear God. The text even goes on to say that he delighted in the fear of God. Do you see where this is going? Isaiah 33 verse 6 says that the fear of God is a treasure of the soul. Treasure of the soul. And Jeremiah 32, this is perhaps the most important text of the whole morning. Jeremiah 32 verses 38 through 40, predicting the new covenant. Do you know what the new covenant is? That's the treasure of salvation purchased by the death of Christ. And listen very carefully to the supernatural work that God performs in the souls of those whom he saves. Listen very carefully for fear. God says, behold, they will be my people and I will be their God and I will give to them one heart and one will to fear me all of their days to do good to them and to their sons after them. And I will make an eternal covenant with them and I will not remove it from them to do good to them. And I, here it is, will put the fear of me in their hearts so that they do not stray from me. I mean, that is incredible. The new covenant that Christ bought with his blood has included in it on the list of its many salvation blessings and benefits, the supernatural implantation of the fear of God into the souls of the people that God saves. In other words, Jesus bought with his blood the fear of God. What do you do with that? And then you get to the gospels. I'm not done. There's more to go here. You get to the Gospels, and what do you do with the fact that Christ commanded us multiple times to fear God? Clearly, he did not feel that this was incompatible with the message that he preached. This was the message that he preached. And what do you do with the fact that when Christ does some mind-blowing miracle, the Gospels say that the crowd was terrified and glorified God? Wait, terror and glory in the same response? 
What do you do with the fact that when Christ walked on water, the disciples were afraid, and then when he got in the boat, they worshipped him? What do you do with Matthew 28, verse 8, when it says, when the women walked away from the empty tomb, they were filled with joy and with great fear. Fear and joy in the same response. My point is very simply this. The Gospels, again and again, always juxtapose fearing God with some other response that seems incompatible, like glorifying God and joy in God and worshiping God. But clearly, they are not incompatible. Colossians 3.22. Slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything, not with eye service as men pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Where am I going with this? What's the point? Well, I I drag you through all that to show you that the Bible itself refutes every single one of our negative connotations that we associate with the fear of God. Doesn't it? I mean, if it's a delight and a joy and a treasure and it's for your good and it's the fountain of life, and it helps you sleep, and it's healing to the body and refreshment to the bones, and it's the meaning of life, and it is synonymous with trust and love and faith and implanted in the soul and bought by the blood of Jesus, and it is all of those things, then clearly, clearly fearing God is not what you think. It's better than you think. Do you see? Clearly fearing God with all of its holy dread and righteous trembling before the majesty of God is also filled with faith and love and pleasure and joy and delight and worship. My point is fearing God is not a problem at all for the Christian. This isn't some outdated expression of faith before grace came along. No, it is the manifestation of grace in our lives. Because we just sang it, didn't we? Twas grace that taught my heart to do what? To fear. And grace my fears relieved. Gotcha. Fearing God is not irreconcilable with love or faith. It is an expression of love and faith. In fact, it isn't really loving God or really faith in God if there isn't also embedded and wrapped up within it, fearing God at the exact same time. All I'm saying is for this first issue here, any aversion we might have to fearing God lies only in our own failure to grasp the beautiful God-exalting layers of what the Bible even means by fearing God. And we are going to find out what this means, which brings us to issue number two. Issue number two, the discovery of fearing God, the discovery of the fearing God. And this could be the most important part of the sermon, this theological sermon, because to define what the fear of God even means, to be able to define that accurately, we have to first build a theology of fearing God from the ground up. In other words, we have to scour the text of scripture and we have to find all the reasons given in the text for why we should fear God. Why is this a thing? 
Because you understand the Bible gives reasons, lots and lots of reasons to fear God. And typically most people assume that fearing God only has to do with his wrath. And that's true. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And yet that's not the only reason to fear God. Listen very carefully. There is a kind of fear appropriate if you are God's enemy and under his wrath. There is another kind of fear profoundly appropriate if you are his friend and covered by the blood of his son. Either way, you must fear the living God, but as divinely chosen, blood-bought, spirit-awakened believers adopted by the Father through his Son, there are other reasons the Bible gives to fear God. And what are those reasons? Well, had we the two and a half hours to look at literally the 375-plus texts that commend and command the fear of God, we would see lots of reasons, and I'm going to give you three. Three theological reasons the Bible gives to fear God. Number one, number one, you should fear God for his power in creation. You should fear God for his power in creation because you understand the Bible makes a big deal out of this. Creation, I mean, literal. Six days, speaking the universe into existence out of nothing. You see, the Bible just never ever lets us forget the reality of the sovereign power of God to create all things and that that is sufficient reason in itself to fear God. You want the foundation of a biblical worldview? Here it is, Psalm 33, verse 6. By the word of Yahweh, the heavens were made and by the breath of his mouth, all of their host Do you hear what the psalm just said? That the entire cosmos, 93 billion light years, I suppose we guess across, and every star in the cosmos, 400 billion just in our galaxy alone, all of that was whispered into existence by the mere breath of Yahweh. And I know you know that. But do you know the Bible's application of that? Two verses later, same psalm. Let all of the earth fear Yahweh. And let all the inhabited world stand in awe of him. Do you see that fearing God? Fearing God is the application of creation. Stunned silence is the only appropriate response. Everyone on the planet should be standing in awe right now. Why? Very next verse. For he spoke and it was done. He commanded and it stood fast. In the time and the effort it took you to breathe just now is about what it took Yahweh to speak the universe and everything it contains into existence. And my point is, whatever sense of astonishment you might have in your soul right now, whatever sense of wonder, whatever sense of of, of staggering, trembling response that you have in your soul, that is precisely what the Bible means by fear. Do you see? 
Psalm 96, three through five, sings the same note. You should fear God because he brought the universe into being. Declare his glory among the nations and his wonders among all of the peoples. Why? For great is Yahweh and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all of the gods. Why? Why is he he to be feared above all the other so-called gods of the nations? Very next verse. For all of the gods of the peoples are idols. Here it is. But Yahweh made the heavens. That's why he is to be feared. Because he made the heavens. He made them. He, He caused them to exist. What motivates the fear of God and the heart of his people is the atomic sovereign power that brought the universe into existence out of nothing. You understand the creative power of God puts him in his rightful place as matchless and supreme and it puts us in our rightful place as fragile and contingent. Reason number two, you should fear God. Reason number two, you should fear God for the supremacy of his perfections. You should fear God for the supremacy of perfections. By his perfections, I mean his attributes. I mean the innumerable perfections of God that make him who he is. And let's talk about theology for a moment. Let's do a little theology here. We, we tend to describe and relate to God in terms of his attributes, right? Like we, we tend to describe God and think of him in terms of his individual perfections. Like, like light through a prism, we tend to refract God out and chop him up and dice him up into all of his perfections. God is eternal. God is infinite. God is love. God is sovereign. And that's fine. That's fine. We can and we should admire his individual perfections that make him who he is. However, however. When the scriptures speak of fearing God, listen carefully, it is as a response to his supremacy as a whole. In other words, to rightly fear God, we need to unrefract his perfections and consider the blinding brightness of who he is in all of his innumerable attributes at once. To put it another way, God is worthy of fear precisely because of the entire spectrum of perfections that make him a treasure of infinite value and glory. For instance, Deuteronomy 10, 17, listen for the logic of Moses for why we should fear God. Listen for attributes. Listen for his, his supremacy, his matchless supremacy. Deuteronomy 10, 17, you don't have to turn there, but here's what it says. For Yahweh, your God, he is the God of gods and the Lord of lords. He is the great and mighty and awesome God who does not show partiality, nor does he take a bribe. That word awesome God or fearsome God, maybe your Bible says, guess what? That is literally the Hebrew word, fear. Fear, it's the word fear. This is the fearful God. This is the God who provokes fear. This is the God who is feared. This is a great and mighty God who strikes fear into the soul. And did you catch the reason Moses gave for why he is fearful, worthy to be feared? Did you hear it? 
it's said because he is the God of gods and the Lord of lords. Do you see what he's saying? The, the theology he's giving us? It is his transcendence. It is his majesty as God which grips the soul and causes it to tremble. And so it's no wonder that three verses later, Moses says this, you shall fear Yahweh your God and you shall serve him. You shall cling to him and you shall swear by his name. So you see where this is going, right? I haven't lost you yet, have I? Fearing God is the appropriate response of the soul to all of who God is in his majesty and supremacy. That's the point. Jeremiah 10. Let's keep on cooking here. Jeremiah 10, which Yevi read, which has contained a scathing expose on the stupidity of idols. Starting in verse 5. The gods of the nations cannot speak. They must be carried because they cannot walk. Listen carefully. There is no one like you, Yahweh. You are great and great is your name in might. Here it is. Who should not fear you? O king of the nations, indeed it is your due. For among all of the wise ones of the nations and among all of their kingdoms, there is no one like you. What they worship is stupid. But Yahweh is the true God. He is the living God and the king of eternity. At his wrath, the earth quakes and the nations cannot endure his indignation. Who should not fear you, O king of the nations? This is your due. This is what's right. This is the only thing that makes sense. And why does it make sense? Why? Because Yahweh is the true God. He is the living God. He is the king of eternity. Do you see? The fear of God is the appropriate response of the soul to the supremacy and beauty and majesty of the living God. One more text to seal the deal. Revelation 15. Revelation 15, which is a, believe it or not, a song sung by future martyrs, pre-celebrating the arrival of the kingdom. Listen carefully for the reason to fear. This is Revelation 15, 3 and 4. You don't have to turn there, but here we go. Great and marvelous are your works, O Lord God, the Almighty. Righteous and true are your ways, O king of the nations, who should not fear you, O Lord, and give glory to your name. Do you see how fear and glory are equated there? That's interesting. Who should not give glory to your name because it alone is holy and all the nations shall come and they shall bow down, worship before you because your righteous acts have been Reveal. Did you notice two things? That fearing God is synonymous with glorifying God and worshiping God. Did you notice that? And number two, did you hear the four reasons given in the text for why the Almighty is worthy of being feared? One, his works are great and marvelous. Two, his ways are true and righteous. Three, he alone is holy. And four, his righteous deeds have been put on display. Are you seeing the theology of God beginning to emerge here? Fear 
is the appropriate response of the soul, a very exhilarated response, by the way, to who God is in all of his matchless and innumerable perfections. Put it this way. We will never fear God. And thus never taste the joy that that produces until or unless we come to grips with the fact that God is not merely in a different class, but in a class by himself. That he is other, that he is transcendent, that he is lofty and exalted and matchless and supreme. This, you understand, is the fountain from which fear flows. The third reason. I owe you three reasons. Here's the third reason why we must fear God. Number three, you should fear God for his undeserved grace in salvation. You should fear God for his undeserved grace and salvation, which doesn't seem to fit, right? That you fear God because he forgave you. That you should fear God that he saved you. You should fear God because he has granted you the treasure of salvation by grace alone. Exactly why you should fear him. Because you understand there is such a thing as gospel fear. Did you know that? There is such a thing as filial fear that trembles with joy at the adoptive grace of Jesus Christ. You understand, there is a kind of weak need, face to the ground, trembling in the soul that arises when a ruined sinner comes to grips with sovereign grace. If you understand the eternal torment from which you have been saved, how could you not tremble at sovereign grace? Do you see? And again and again, throughout the Bible, salvation from Yahweh and fearing Yahweh is inseparable and tightly connected. It's incredible. Here are a few examples. Psalm 40, verse 3. It says that many will see and fear and they will trust in Yahweh. Again, there's the connection between fear and trust, but many will see and fear. When is that supposed to happen? You look at the context of the psalm, it is the eschatological deliverance salvation at the end of the age. Psalm 102, a kingdom psalm, portraying the arrival of Yahweh himself to establish his kingdom. It says the nations will fear. The nations will fear the name of Yahweh and all of the kings of the earth, his glory. When is that supposed to happen? universal, worldwide fearing of God among the nations. When is that supposed to happen? Well, when at the end of history, when God saves his people and builds his kingdom. But then there's Psalm 130 verse four. Listen carefully. It says, for with you, there is forgiveness that you may be feared. With you, there is forgiveness that you may be feared. The intended byproduct and design of forgiveness is that you would fear God. Did you know that? But by far the greatest text, the greatest text that links together salvation from God and fearing God is 1 Peter 1, 17 and 18. This is an incredible text. Listen very carefully. Peter says, and if you address as father, 
the one who impartially judges according to each man's work, live your lives in fear during the time of your stay on earth. Why? Why, Peter? Why not loving the Father? Why not trusting the Father? Why not hoping in the Father? Why not delighting in the Father? Why not worshiping the Father? Why not obeying the Father? Why fearing the Father? Why? What, what would produce that kind of response? Very next verse. Listen carefully. Live your lives in fear. Why? Because you know that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver and gold from your feudal way of life handed down from your forefathers. But with what? But with the precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ who was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was manifested at the last of these times for the sake of you. Did you hear the reason? The compelling, motivating power why we should fear is redemption. It's redemption. It's that you were redeemed. You were liberated. Think about this. You were liberated from the clutches of sin's power. You were freed from the dungeon of sin's tyranny. Not with silver and gold, but with the blood of a blameless lamb, unblemished and spotless. And that, that infinite cost to save our souls is the reason, Peter says, you must live your life in fear. So you see, there is a kind of fear appropriate if you are God's enemy and under his wrath. There is another kind of fear profoundly appropriate if you are his friend and covered by the blood of his son. John Bunyan put it this way. He said, godly fear, godly fear flows from a sense of the love and kindness of God to the soul. Where there is no sense of hope and the kindness of mercy of God by Jesus Christ, there can be none of this fear, but rather wrath and despair, which produces a fear like that of the devils. But godly fear flows from a sense of hope and mercy from God by Jesus Christ. Did you hear the two kinds of hope that, the two kinds of fear that Bunyan describes? There's godly fear and there is devil's fear. One flows, he says, from the love and kindness of God to the soul. The other flows from wrath and despair. But the point is, fearing God is not inconsistent with being saved by Christ. It is the manifestation of being saved by Christ. Which, of course, raises the question, do you fear God? Do you fear God? Do you, 1 Peter 1.17, live your life in fear of God? Because there, there is a fear that flows from redemption, and there is a fear that flows from condemnation. The question is, what kind of fear do you possess? Those are reasons. Those are reasons, among the many reasons to fear God. Which brings us now to issue number three. 
the definition of fearing God. The definition of fearing God is because we've got to define it. And now after all that, we get to the point where we can define it. And clearly you get a sense, don't you? You get a sense that, that our default distaste for the fear of God lies only in one-dimensional views of God, doesn't it? Our default distaste for the fear of God lies only in one-dimensional definitions of the word fear, doesn't it? You can totally tell that there is something complex. There is something, there is something multifaceted and beautiful happening here. You understand that to fear God, you can see it now, to fear God is not to fear him as a monster. It's not to, to fear him as a tyrant or an abusive, unstable father. It is a categorically different kind of fear than the fear of cancer and serial killers and rapists lurking in parking lots. Rather, what the Bible has in mind by the fear of God, listen carefully, is a sheer terror of God mixed and fused with a satisfying pleasure in God that makes you keep your distance but also finds him to be absolutely irresistible. Do you see? Fearing God is a little bit like standing on the precipice of a massive cliff. You're simultaneously terrified of falling to your death, but you find the view below to be irresistible. Fearing God is a little bit like when you were a kid seeing an enormous lion in the zoo. You knew you had darn well better keep your distance, but you found it irresistible not to get as close as you could possibly be. Do you see? That's kind of what this is, multiple things happening at the same time. Therefore, I'm moving towards a definition now. To fear God, get this, is the raw, delicious terror that you taste in your soul when you begin to understand the sheer magnitude of the God who never had a beginning. When you begin to grasp the towering majesty of God, the Himalayan heights of the God who spoke galaxies into existence, to fear God means that you have a profound God consciousness that knows that no matter where you are, you are standing on holy ground. Why? Because God is there. It means that who God is, is so real to you that you would never dare trifle with him or treat him as common. In other words, here is my actual definition. To fear God is to tremble before him as the treasure of your soul. That's the fear of God. Or at least that's the one I'm sticking with. To fear God is to tremble before him as the treasure of your soul. You understand, beloved, God is good, but he is not safe. You know that God is kind, but he is not tame, is he? You know that he is a father, 
full of filial affection and love, but you also know that he is not to be trifled with. He is a delight to be sure, and in his presence is fullness of joy. In his right hand, there are pleasures forever. But he is also at the same time irresistibly dangerous. So, beloved, do you fear God? Do, do you fear him? Meaning, do you taste the raw, delicious terror in your soul of the God who never had a beginning? You don't play with God, do you? You don't treat him as common or mundane, do you? Do you have that profound God consciousness that knows that no matter where you're standing, you're standing on holy ground because God is there? What I'm asking is, do you tremble before God as the treasure of your soul? How would you know? How would you know if you did fear God? Well, you would ask yourself these kinds of questions. I have asked you these before. I have no problem asking them again. How do you know if you fear God? Number one, are there some sins that you would not commit at church, but you would commit somewhere else? Number two, who are you and what do you do? And more importantly, what do you love when no one is around and no one is watching you except God? Number three, if you knew that you could indulge in the filthiest sin possible and no one would ever see it or know about it except God, would you do it? Number four, as the only thing that keeps you back from certain sins, the fear of getting caught and not because who, of who God is, because those two things are a world of difference. And how you answer each of those questions determines if God is your God or if people are your God. This is very practical, you understand. So as promised, this is gonna go fast. These are all in your notes. If you don't have the notes, you can pick them up on the way out. Here are the five reasons we should pursue the fear of God with single-minded passion and intensity. Number one, and then I'm done. Number one, you should pursue the fear of God with single-minded passion and intensity because it is the beginning of wisdom. Fearing God is the beginning of wisdom, Proverbs 9, verse 10. And what is wisdom? What is wisdom? but the spiritual skill of applying scripture to every area of life. The more you fear God, the more wise you become, the more wise you become, the more holy you become. Number two, you should pursue the fear of God with single-minded passion and intensity because it is the power for holiness. Fearing God is the power for holiness. Proverbs 8.13 the one who fears Yahweh turns away from evil. Proverbs 16, 6. By loving kindness and truth, iniquity is atoned for, but by the fear of Yahweh, one turns away from evil. In other words, if you've got nagging, hard to reach sins in your life that just don't seem to take no for an answer. The way 
to put them to death is to tremble before God as the treasure of your soul. Number three, you should pursue the fear of God with single-minded passion and intensity because it is the secret to satisfaction. Fearing God is the secret to satisfaction. It satisfies the soul. That is exactly what Proverbs 14, 27 means when it says that the fear of Yahweh is the fountain of life. Nehemiah 1, 11, the servants of Yahweh take pleasure in fearing him. Isaiah 33, 6, the fear of Yahweh is a treasure. And thus, thus true satisfaction in the soul only happens when we encounter the supremacy of God in his word and especially in and through his son, Jesus Christ. Number four. Number four, you should pursue the fear of God with single-minded passion and intensity. Get this, because it is the foundational stage step in your health. Fearing God is the foundational step in your physical health, physical health. I believe that's what Proverbs 3, 7, and 8 is meaning when it says, fear Yahweh and turn away from evil. Why? For it will be healing to your body and refreshment to your bones. If you want to spiritualize that and make that something else, I don't think you should do that. I think Solomon means literally. Our bodies and souls are inseparably intertwined, each one mutually affecting the other. And Solomon says the place to begin in both our physical and our spiritual health is to fear and tremble before the living God. Number five, and then we're done. You should pursue the fear of God with single-minded passion and intensity because it is great likeness to Jesus Christ. Fearing God is great likeness to Jesus Christ. In other words, you tremble before God as the treasure of the soul and you will resemble and reflect and portray and display the surpassing worth and beauty of Jesus Christ to the world and in your home and your marriages, and to your kids, and to your coworkers, and to your comrades sitting here in the local church. In other words, to fear God is to be like Jesus. And trust me when I say that there is nothing in the world more practical than that. Oh, Lord, we miss Isaiah, but we are grateful at the consistency of your word to, to teach us things like this, that the appropriate response in our souls to you and all of your majesty and all of your glory is to fear you. And we're grateful, oh, Lord, that our fears about fearing you are relieved, that we see, oh, Lord, that it is beautiful and glorious and inseparable from and interchangeable with faith and joy, and delight, and worship, and affection, and adoration, and it results in profound life change and holiness. We want all that, Lord. We, we want that. We're just people. We struggle. Sanctification is slow. Sin is hard. Life is painful. This is really, really hard. This life, oh Lord, is beyond our means, and so we come to you as, as spiritual cripples and beggars of grace. We, we come to you with nothing to offer you except need and requests. 
and supplications that you would supply the very power that we need to fear you and to live lives that put your worth and beauty on display. And we ask for that in the glorious and matchless name of Jesus Christ who bought the fear of you with his own blood. And it's in his name we pray.